Hi everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today we have a very special occasion. It's our 200th episode. I cannot believe we have made it to 200. I think you were saying last week that it has kind of flown by though. It's odd that we're already here in some ways, but I also feel like we've been doing this forever and... We've come such a long way since our very first episode, but today we'll be celebrating 200 by sharing the Oscar Wilde Top 200 with you. So we will be going through 20 different categories and each sharing five picks that fit in with each of these categories. I'm so excited for this episode. We've basically been doing this every week for almost four years, which is insane but i always wanted an outlet to talk about movies and we always talked about movies together so it really was the perfect marriage of our favorite things so i've enjoyed the time that we've had together and everything we've talked about whether we agree or not and we get to continue today we'll talk about plenty of things we love we know the other person doesn't like and Just things throughout history that we can cover on this pod, but also things we can't touch because the Oscars never would have either. So I'm excited to talk about lots of things today from some of our favorite actors throughout time to some of our favorite movies. Yeah, and it really is, like you said, we had always, I think, you know, left screenings of movies and immediately just texted each other, you know, what did you think of that? We would watch the Oscars together. And I think we both really, like you said, always wanted an outlet to talk about movies, to talk about the Oscars, but just didn't really know how to take that leap or how that would take shape. So I'm really happy that we decided to do this and it's been so much fun and I can't wait to keep going. And it's kind of a fun departure of what we normally do. And we'll obviously talk about a lot of the movies and why we chose them over others. But it's also kind of a riff on what Las Culturistas did with their top 200 moments in pop culture. So just throwing out some love there. And that was just such a fun episode. So I think today will be a lot of fun. Let's get started because it's going to take a while <laughs> with some of our favorite best picture winners. Okay, so... I'll share my top five favorite Best Picture winners, and it's so hard for me to rank things. I mean, rankings are so arbitrary, so some of these things I really just thought of the five that came to mind, and others I put a lot of thought into, okay, here's how I'd rank them, and I also want to point out that across our categories, we tried not to overlap at all, both individually, like within our own list, and with each other. But there will be some overlap here and there, just that's unavoidable. This is the first category where that happens. Of course, it has to. But my top five picks here are The Godfather, All About Eve, Ordinary People, The Godfather Part 2, and Casablanca. And my five are 12 Years a Slave, Amadeus, The Best Years of Our Lives, The Godfather, and Parasite. So we both had to have The Godfather, of course. I really do think that... This is the greatest winner of Best Picture ever. It's just a perfect movie. And The Godfather, of course, came out in 1972. And seeing it last year on the big screen for its 50th just reminded me of how well it's held up as a movie, too. It flies by just getting to take it all in, I think. 
yeah, that's just one of my all-time favorites. In another way that Amadeus is, I think that winning Best Picture feels like such a different kind of win compared to The Godfather. So I love that that is a big part of Oscars history and it won so many Oscars that it's up there in like the top maybe 10 to 15 of all time of winners. So Mm -hmm. I love that movie so much. We've covered that in the past. We've covered all of mine except for 12 Years a Slave. I was going to fill this in with another movie you'll talk about very shortly, so I won't spoil that. But I think it just shows a nice collection of where the Oscars have been. Yes, mine have a more recent average, I would say, in terms of years compared to yours. That's expected. But 12 Years a Slave and Steve McQueen's direction, I just had to applaud because his vision, his cinematography and camera are always stunning. And since then, we've still gotten movies from him that have also shined. So I wanted a good collection. And yeah, Parasite, I have to mention, that's I dare to say my favorite best picture win ever. It's a hard one with The Godfather, but those are my top two. Well, and Parasite also, I think, was such a significant step in the Academy's history, but it was also, you know, I think your belief in Parasite and it being able to win the big ones meant that you got all of your Oscar predictions right, which I think really boosted our podcast, I have to say, because (laughs) then I think people started to pay attention a bit, so... Thank you for your good luck and your good fortune with predictions. (laughs) Just adding to my list a little bit, we covered Casablanca earlier this year. This is one of my favorite, you know, golden age of Hollywood films. I love the screenplay. I think it just really holds up. And we also covered All About Eve, which I know we're both huge fans of and can't recommend enough. The other two, Ordinary People and The Godfather Part Two. I still hope we can cover Ordinary People one day. Um, I'm trying to think of a theme for it. We'll have to come up with something. But The Godfather Part 2 turns 50 next year. So we'll have to have a big Mm -hmm. celebration of that. I absolutely love The Godfather Part 2. And some days I prefer it to The Godfather. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to our second category, Best Actress Winners. I think it's safe to say this is our favorite category at the Oscars. And Mm -hmm. we like to cover this on the pod a lot we've done some series on actresses so yeah my five here i have olivia coleman for the favorite joan crawford for mildred pierce jane fonda for clute judy holiday for born yesterday and natalie portman for black swan i love how much you love judy holiday and born yesterday especially because we just covered that not that long ago the minute i saw it i knew it would last in my favorite memories forever because it's just her performance is kooky crazy, as they would say in Titanic. (laughs) And yeah, again, another inspired pick by the Academy. So I applaud them for this. Yeah, and I I know you love Olivia Colman, too. One of my favorite wins. I mean, not to dump on Glenn Close, because her winning also would have been a great (laughs) career achievement, and hopefully she still will one day. But the surprise when I heard Olivia Colman's name blew me away and that was my favorite performance of the year and we kind of mentioned the favorite on our last episode with poor things and that conversation always hearing or thinking about this role makes me want to rewatch that movie because olivia coleman feels like she's in another world just performing which she always does just like in wonka oh my god just like in wonka where she's playing a mix of like a Thenardier from les mis and the trench bowl in matilda (laughs) 
That's how her her <laughs> performance and that character feels in Wonka. Yes. <laughs> but I do, you know, love seeing her nonetheless. Um, but my five here, I cheated. I actually have six. You'll see what I mean in a second. But uh, my five are Frances McDormand in Fargo, Diane Keaton in Annie Hall, Jodie Foster for The Silence of the Lambs, both of Vivian Lee's best actress wins. So Gone with the Wind and A Streetcar Named Desire. I really think they're both fabulous wins and she's just the actress of her time and my number one favorite if I'm being true to myself is Faye Dunaway for network of course <laughs> I have that picture of her the morning after shot of her by the pool in that like champagne mm-hmm. gold dress with the Oscar nearby and all the newspapers and she just looks so unbothered by everyone forever my queen Faye Dunaway and it's just I think when I was putting together my list I was thinking okay so Faye Dunaway in Network, that performance as Diana Christensen, she is playing the type of woman who never wins Best Actress. In a way, like when you think about Olivia Coleman in The Favorite too, like they're playing these these women who are nasty and hard to root for. They're unlikable, as many voters would say. And those types of roles don't always earn Best Actress Oscars, but when they do... It's really just the best. And for Jodie Foster and for Frances McDormand, I was thinking about these two as just really original characters and how the actresses that portray them, no one else really could do what they do in those roles. And just thinking of how rich they made them. And of course, with Diane Keaton for Annie Hall, I don't think she gets enough credit for what she does here in this performance. You know, a lot of people I think say she's playing herself and that's very limited and limiting in the view of the performance. And I feel like it really defined the time period. And I mean, think of how many people dress like Annie Hall, not just me, (laughs) but others too. And they have for, for years, but really, I mean, she completely runs away with one of the decades defining films, just delightful, a ball of energy. The Silence of the Lambs being the one I wanted to put in my picture five. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible horror film. It's a great Oscar winner. It's one of the big five. It's an all-timer. So yeah, I love that this is on your list. And we might be talking about Jodie Foster more, which is really exciting for a very different kind of performance. So we'll see. <laughs> Clary Starling and Bonnie Stoll are very different, but maybe they do have some similarities that we can explore in our Contender series. I wonder if they'd be friends in another life. Honestly, I kind of think so. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so next up, we'll talk about some international films, and these had to have been nominated at the Oscars in any category. Okay, so my five, I can't believe I did this, but... It's not very creative, but I did pick two Bergman films just because I love Bergman. I have Fanny and Alexander and Wild Strawberries. Um, I also have My Night at Mons, which is my favorite Romare film. And then I have two recent ones that I thought were very inspired nominations in multiple categories at the Oscars. I have Cold War and Drive My Car, which I know you're a big fan of. Oh, one of my favorite wins of all time. My five, I have The 400 Blows, All About My Mother, Cinema Paradiso, Day for Night, and Life is Beautiful. Another hot button issue of the podcast. I think one day we will need to talk about Life is Beautiful. 
because Mm -hmm. I remember you was, it was a few years ago at this point on the show, you revealed to me that you love life is beautiful. And this will be one of our more divided episodes, (laughs) but I haven't seen it in years. So I'm willing to give it another shot. Having seven Oscar nominations and winning three. That's a big Mm -hmm. movie. We have to cover it. I don't know. I loved it when I first saw it. I thought it was just unique and how it captured the Holocaust with this comedy. And then I studied it in a French and Italian Holocaust cinema class. And I think breaking it down helped me like it even more. And really how they use comedy to subvert what's happening on the screen and in what the characters are doing for each other. But yeah, it was a recent conversation, or maybe it was Bennett, but you both didn't like it. And it seemed to be in the ether that this is not a well-liked movie and I didn't know that beforehand so I was blissfully living in my own cloud of loving this movie I don't know I had never heard of people hating it before my entire family really loves it so you can oh, okay <laughs> you're gonna say hate it I yeah I don't know it's funny because I was actually having this conversation with my sister the other day and I was telling her that I have a really hard time There's just something in my brain that can't handle Holocaust satire or comedy associated with the Holocaust. I don't know what it is necessarily, but there's just something that keeps me very, I'm I'm very dubious of it. The big outlier though is The Great Dictator, which I think is amazing and I know will come up later. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I think we have to cover it. And it was with Bennett because we were talking about it. And I think Bennett had listened back to one of our episodes and texted us (laughs) and said, Sophia, I'm with you. I never understood (laughs) why Nick liked this movie. So yes, for everyone listening, we will have a Life is Beautiful discussion in the future. (laughs) And now that I think about it, I have three similar movies on my entire list today that use comedy to talk about the Holocaust. But I think they're all done very well. I don't know. The other two movies, yeah, you mentioned The Great Dictator. There's one more. And I think they're all highly regarded. They're also, those two at least, are on the Criterion Collection. I don't believe Life is Beautiful is. Well, when it is, you need to write the Criterion essay (laughs) for it. I'll write my own. So I think just going through a few of mine too, um, Fanny and Alexander we covered on a previous episode talking about international films, and I know that you and I both really love this, and Mm -hmm. I think I'm a bit higher on Bergman overall as a filmmaker compared to you, but I think Fanny and Alexander is the one that we both really agree on. I think it is just a film that takes your breath away, and exciting news. I remember when we covered it over a year ago at this point, I told you that I was going to watch the TV version broken up by seasons. And (laughs) I'm about to finish it. I have the last, the last chapter left. Amazing. It's been a really rewarding experience. I have to say, I think the TV version is superior, even though the, the theatrical cut is perfect too. And a great way to start if you feel too daunted by the TV version, but Have you seen Wild Strawberries, the other Bergman on my list? I don't think I have, actually. I love this movie. It's only 91 minutes, so (laughs) it's on the shorter side if that entices you. But it is such a beautiful, beautiful film. And Bergman made this movie about his father and looking at his father's life. 
And it's one of his kindest movies. It's not as harsh, I think, as some of the others. Because he's giving the protagonist in the story just the space and time to process his memories. And it's just such a beautiful film. And you know I love my films about dreams and memories and thinking back on your life. And it's a just a it's a very profound film. But the story behind this too that's really interesting is that it was nominated for the original screenplay Oscar, but Bergman refused to accept the nomination because he famously hated the Oscars. Oh God. Well, so I wanted to include that on here to tell the story too, but I think in the future also we need to do a Romare series. I'm down for that too. I know you like French cinema too, and I just love so many of his films, but My Night at Mods just when I first saw it really hit me out of nowhere. And I think it's just such an interesting film about religion and about people interacting and the central performance by Francois Fabian who plays Maud, is, Mm -hmm. she's fantastic. We have another category coming up about blind spots, and Romare is my blind spot. I really am kind of just saving up for a big marathon, but I know you've mentioned him a lot before and a few of his movies. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to get to those eventually. I think with mine, Cinema Paradiso has famously been my favorite movie of all time for a long time. I don't know if that needs to change, but I think it's just a delightful film and really inspiring and, you know, is about film. It's about this director and I think how it captures love and his relationship with a woman, but also with film is just so, so beautiful. And All About My Mother, we've talked on the pod. I love Almodovar. And we mentioned Day for Night briefly, but that was also a recent watch that really Mm -hmm. blew me away. Francois Truffaut, legend, also another French film is The 400 Blows, which you just saw in theaters, right? Yes, for the very first time. This was one of my biggest blind spots ever. And I think part of the reason is that it was one that I really wanted to see in theaters. If I have international films that are blind spots... I know that we're really spoiled living in New York, but they play a lot of them in the repertory cinemas. And I try to go when they're playing and the 400 Blows just had not come up. But when I was in London, it was playing there. So I I thought I have to go see this. It was playing at the Prince Charles and it was magical. It's definitely one of my favorites too. I think certainly one of my favorite first time watches of 2023. And it was one where I thought, you know, I can't believe I waited so long to finally see it. But Mm -hmm. you also get that feeling, I think, when you wait for some of these movies and you finally see them. like You think, oh, my God, I'm so happy that I saw that as an adult with all of the, you know, extra knowledge of cinema and of French cinema that I have now. It just, yeah, it really just lit up on the screen for me. Oh, I love that. Just beautiful camera work. Some of those shots have stuck with me for years and years and... Oh, yeah. Great final shot. Perfect final shot. So next we have snubbed from a nomination. Always a painful part of covering the Oscars, especially when you look back on certain movies or people from history and you just think, how did that not happen? Yeah, these are some movies that I really wish we could talk about on the pod and we kind of find ways to. We've actually covered some of them on After Dark on our Patreon, so we're finding ways to get in there. But my five picks are The Farewell, 
I would have put this in for Best Picture and Lulu Wong in Director. Frances Ha, I would have nominated Greta Gerwig in Actress. This performance is just so rattled and feels like whenever I watch it, I'm just consumed by her acting and how neurotic she is. I I love this a lot. Mm -hmm. I would have also nominated it in screenplay. I think nominating Bombach and Gerwig would have been such an inspired screenplay nomination, but didn't get a single thing. Next, I have In the Mood for Love. I would have nominated this all over the place, winning in cinematography, but mainly Best Director for Wong Kar Wai. The fact that he's never been nominated is insane. And then I have The Shining for cinematography. I love this movie. This is one of my favorites. And then I would have nominated Tony Collette for Hereditary. That would have been one of my favorite nominations of all time as well. Yeah, it's it's funny because so in minor, a little bit older with the exception of one, but with The Farewell and Hereditary, I remember how important those movies were to you. And being so sad when those nominations didn't happen, especially The Farewell. I feel like that was a movie that we both really loved that year and such a phenomenal debut from Lulu Wong that just to see them not go for it was really sad. My list is all over the place. So first I have the 1995 classic, one of my favorite movies of all time, Michael Mann's Heat which was not nominated in any categories at the Oscars, I would have nominated at least sound, editing, Michael Mann for director. I think this is just such a gripping crime thriller and has some of the best scenes I've ever seen. And it's just one of my favorites. I got to see it at this beautiful theater in Washington Heights. It was the new 4K restoration. And there was a Q&A with Pacino and De Niro. And it was... One of the most magical cinematic experiences I've ever had. It really was. (laughs) And for one of my favorite movies, too. So highly recommend Heat. I think we will need to do a Michael Mann retrospective at some point. I don't think necessarily leading up to Ferrari is that moment. But yeah, I agree. I think he has some real gems in his filmography that we should definitely cover. Next, I have a movie that was nominated for some Oscars, but I want to call out one snub in particular that has always haunted me, and that's Anthony Perkins and his performance in Psycho. I feel that the Academy is so bad with recognizing horror performances, and we talk about this every fall. I feel like when we t- when it's Halloween and we talk about horror movies, you know, why don't they go for these performances? But Anthony Perkins in Psycho invented decades of performances to come with other actors. I mean, without him and what he does as Norman Bates, I don't think we would have Andrew Garfield. We wouldn't have Timothy Chalamet. And the film itself, as great of a directorial achievement as it is, would not work in the same way without Perkins' brilliance in the film. Next, I have my most recent movie of the group. I have Burning, which is um, Lee Chang Dong's thriller. It's a slow burn, but it is so rewarding, I think, and just so haunting. And it was my favorite movie of 2018. And I was hoping and praying that it would get into international feature. I remember that year, but this was before Parasite and up to Parasite, a Korean film had not been nominated before in international feature. There was serious bias against them despite, you know, decades of 
incredible filmmaking coming from South Korea, but this film I can't recommend enough. And not just for international feature though, but I would have nominated Lee Chang Dong in adapted screenplay, in director, and most importantly, I would have given Steven Yeun the win in supporting actor. He's so scary and unsettling and burning, and it's just a perfect showcase of his skills as an actor. Harold and Maude, one of my favorite movies ever made. And recently, I found out that you like Harold and Maude, which was a reveal. I was shocked, given how you feel about 70s movies in general. And Hal Ashby is one of my favorite directors. This is one of my favorite movies ever. It changed my life when I saw it. So I was so happy that you liked it. But famously snubbed from the Oscars in any category. I would have gone screenplay director Ruth Gordon in particular here. I swore I mentioned this on the pod a long time ago, and I think it was one of the first criterions I ever bought. So that's crazy you never knew. Oh my God, and it's out of print now. You're lucky. I have to hold on to that. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. There's a whole Paramount thing, side note, with Criterion, where a lot of the Paramount releases were out of print. So Harold and Maude, Rosemary's Baby, Don't Look Now was for a while. But the Don't Look Now 4K just -hmm. came out really recently. So I'm hoping that Rosemary's Baby and Harold and Maude, even though I own them, will be re-released soon. That's sad. Some of theirs in the collection are out of print and it's a bit distressing. But yeah, I like that they're doing more in 4K because they're beautiful. They're so beautiful. And then my last pick, my favorite cinematographer of all time, Gordon Willis, (laughs) The Prince of Darkness was famously snubbed for years by the Academy. His films picked up dozens of Oscar nominations and wins, and he was not nominated for them. So when you hear Clue, The Godfather, The Paper Chase, The Parallax View, The Godfather Part Two, All the President's Men, Annie Hall, Interiors, Manhattan, he wasn't nominated Nothing. for a single My one. God. And those films... <laughs> uh. His work in those films is, it's another character to the story, right? It's the mood, it's the feeling, it's how you envision New York. And I want to highlight Manhattan in particular because his work on Manhattan is part of the reason why I live in New York. It's just, I think, some of the most beautiful work you'll ever see. Another of my blind spots. I had trouble finding five and now I'm like, oh, this and that and yeah, Manhattan... It would be an interesting one to talk about because it's very complicated and there's a lot Uh around it due to its subject matter and Woody Allen, of course, but the cinematography, I think what I know about you and your interest in like the technical side of films, Mm -hmm. I think you'll be like pretty dazzled by it. Yeah. Just the look of it in general and how it plays with shadows and light in the city. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's on my list. So next up we have... I mentioned this already, the Criterion Collection, our Criterion Closet Picks. So if we could go into the closet and pick out five movies, I'm sure I'd pick out more than five, but if we could pick out five, what those would be? It's so hard because if I went into the Criterion Closet and they were you know, making the video, I obviously would want to pull out films that I already have just to talk about them. So I think part mm-hmm. of... The exercise here, too, is picking movies that we don't have that we love. 
um, to, to put in our bag. And my first one is Days of Heaven, Terrence Malick's film, which was just re-released on 4K and I do not have the 4K and I really want it. This, I think, is also one of the most beautiful movies ever made. I recently saw this movie for the first time in years. I had seen it before years ago, but I saw it at BAM. They were doing a, a rep screening of it and it took my breath away. I love this film so much. And Jack Fisk, the legendary production designer, built that house from scratch. It looks like a house that you would build a set around, right? You would find this Mm -hmm. location and think we have to shoot this movie here. But no, he built it from scratch, which is just when you think of Days of Heaven, you think of that house that looks like something out of a Wyeth painting. So Days of Heaven. I would also pick EO, (laughs) which I don't own yet, weirdly. I had it in my cart, but then my order was just, it was too much. So I said, you know, EO is a new release. I'll get it another day. (laughs) And it's not a movie I would plan to revisit frequently because it does make you feel like you've had the wind knocked out of you when you watch it. But it's funny, last year in talking about international features, this one, of course, is by um, Jerzy Skolomowski. I loved this film and it really hit me in a really profound way, but that love for it has only grown stronger with time. As I think about the year in film, I think it will be on my list of best films of the decade at the end of the decade. So I'll pick EO. Um, I will also pick The Earrings of Madame De, which is this Max Ophel's film that I watched for the very first time three days ago. And it's my favorite thing I've seen this year, probably. I was just enraptured by it. It's so beautiful. I think anyone who watches the movie and who listens to this podcast will know in the first 10 minutes that this is just a very me film. And it was one of those movies where after I finished it, I needed to read everything about it instantly and just think about it. And the funniest part was that I found a video and I thought, okay, I'll just put this on and see, you know, who is talking about it, what they're saying. And it, of course was my favorite working director, Paul Thomas Anderson, talking about how he steals everything he knows from this movie. He loves the movie and how it's just beautiful and how it just imprinted on his mind. So it felt like a very spiritual connection in that moment. I was like, okay, this is my taste. It's just so true. Um, And then I would also pick The Innocence, the Jack Clayton movie, um, starring my beloved Deborah Carr in one of my favorite lead performances ever. And I think it's one of the best horror films ever made. And I love the gothic quality to it. And then my last pick is a bit of a cheat, but I think we have to have a box set. If you go into the Criterion Closet, you're not going to not pick a box. (laughs) But I picked the soon-to-be-released Romare's Tales of the Four Seasons, which is coming out in February. I have Romare's Six Moral Tales, that box, but this Tales of the Four Seasons looks pretty exciting and I can't wait to own it. So those would be my five. That's a great five. And the only one I actually have is Days of Heaven. Of course, though. You have to have the Malik. Yeah, exactly. And my first one was also a first time watch this year for me that blew me away. It's Dazed and Confused, the Linklater film, based on my thoughts on American Graffiti, which we covered on the pod earlier this year. I was a little scared that maybe I really wouldn't like it, but I absolutely fell in love. There are so many actors in this movie that went on to become 
huge stars. So I think to see them really young is exciting. That was the same thing for American Graffiti too, but I don't know. I just connected to this one so much more. I love Days and Confused. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy you like it too. I would have nominated Matthew McConaughey for an Oscar. I'm being totally yeah. serious. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I mean, that was just iconic. The next one I have, I have to mention a De Palma somewhere on my list. And the one I don't have is Sisters, which I really, really loved seeing for the first time last year. And the next one I have, these are like all recent first time watches, actually. Um, The Virgin Suicide, Sofia Coppola's debut. I was completely blown away by this movie. Oh, I love to hear it. These are all kind of movies that I was scared to see or maybe put off seeing, maybe in part because you love them so much and I didn't want to disappoint you in a way, but these... Oh, no, don't worry about that. (laughs) Um, I think Kirsten Dunst was just phenomenal, incredible, everything. Coppola's muse, obviously, and they went on to make many more together, but I love the story. It's the suburban dream but also so horrific in how it's captured and the way she reveals like what happens to these girls. You're kind of waiting mm-hmm. on edge the whole time and everything looks so beautiful. Her camera is exquisite. Definitely check that one out if you haven't seen it. My next one, another slow burn, Wings of Desire. My lord. This is going to come up for me later because <laughs> I haven't seen it. This is a movie... I think like the earrings of that you're going to see it and be like, how have I not seen this yet? Oh my God. That's so exciting. Vim Vendors. I don't know. It's, it's a hard movie to talk about. And when it starts, you're like, oh boy, I'm in for a ride. But by the time it ends and what they end up talking about, it just left me gobsmacked. And I recently was in Berlin. So I was watching all these Berlin movies. And I think the way it captures the city and just the meaning of life, it really puts everything in perspective in such a rare way for a movie to do. So I think this is definitely one to have of the physical media. And yes, I have to mention a box set. This one came out pretty recently, but it's the world of Wong Kar Wai. I already mentioned him. I feel like I'm cheating, but I recently watched Chunking Express. Love that one as well. I Everything he makes. And I'll be talking about In the Mood for Love later. But there are other ones in there. I haven't seen 2046. And I think there are seven movies in there total. So I just want to consume everything he's made. Because his vision also is outstanding. Wong Kar Wai, the quintessential cancer director. Mm, absolutely. He feels everything. You, you feel everything when you're watching his movies. They're sensory experiences. Yeah, totally. And you mentioned, you know, not wanting to disappoint me, which this next category will prove that that doesn't need to be a fear (laughs) for either of us, because this is one of our funniest categories, I think. (laughs) Movies that we like, but that we know the other doesn't like. (laughs) And maybe we're, you know, confounded by that or... It's one of those where we just think, oh, why? Like, why don't you like this? I love this so much. But I think it's a common theme on our podcast, just like Siskel and Ebert have. Disagreeing keeps film criticism alive. You can't agree on everything. I think it would be really boring if we did. Mm -hmm. Well, in very Sophia and Nick fashion, mine are from the past decade. 
I think, and yours yeah. are all are almost older. from the 70s. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Here we go. My five for you are Climax, Dune, Gravity, Ensemble, and Promising Young Woman. <laughs> it's just, it's so funny, I think, to to look at this list also because... We have two made by Denis Villeneuve here in Dune and Ensemble. I'm sure all five could have been Denis. I know. Yeah, we, we really could have done Prisoners. We could have had a oh, little no. enemy action here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because Dune Part 2 is coming. It's on the horizon. Future Oscar winner is almost released. Oh my god. <laughs> See, this is part of the problem. I was going to post a story when the new trailer came out saying, oh, we're already counting down to 2025 and our next visual effects Oscar winner. I'm so excited. Listen, I can't do it. (laughs) The fact that this movie got pushed. The second it got pushed, I was I thought, oh, my God. okay, that's another year and a half of covering Dune. (laughs) But I hope it's good. I really do. I really hope it's good. I like that section of the book more Mm -hmm. anyway. So I'm, I'm hopeful for it. And you know, some of, sometimes some of these things, they come up because we get salty that they win Oscars over things that we really like, or, or they don't hold up on rewatch and promising young woman. It's funny. That one, I think just when I think back on it, and I don't dislike Emerald Fennell or anything like that. I'm not going to, you know, have my pitchfork out. It's not like that. It's just one of those where this movie made me feel so crappy and awful. <laughs> and I don't like feeling that when I go to the movies. And Gravity is, I think, my most notoriously disliked film, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I disliked Gravity when it came out and I have not swayed. I've tried to rewatch it. I have rewatched it and it just, it's not for me. But I also have difficulty in space. That's just something that comes up. And then Climax, Gaspar Noe, Gaspar No, to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, his films are meant to be problematic and controversial. My favorite of his is Enter the Void. Which I have not seen. I think you should see it because it's very dreamlike. Okay. I think it's more palatable than some of his others. I haven't seen Love and that was like, you know, a big thing. But with Climax, I think it just really took me by surprise. It's supposed to be like one shot, which I liked. And there's a really beautiful, intense opening sequence. It's like the first 10 or so minutes of them dancing. And you just slowly fall into this movie deeper and deeper. And maybe a little later on, it gets a little much, for sure. But there are parts of this that I really like. But yeah, definitely check out Enter the Void. With the others, I don't know, Denis, love him. I need to rewatch On Sunday, but I think that was the first Denis film I saw. And then Dune, don't really have to say much there. We'll be talking about Dune so much over the next few months. Next year, really. Over a year. (laughs) I really don't think... Warner Brothers had to delay it. I mean, I I get it now, now that we're on the other side of the writer's strike and the actor's strike ending. 
but I think it was also a way to highlight the color purple, which we'll have to wait to Christmas to see if that happens. But I feel like we could have had Dune Part 2 in the picture lineup even. So it's kind of interesting that they waited. I guess we'll we'll also very soon be doing our 2024 release episode. So that'll be exciting. And we'll, I guess, kind of see how things are going to play out for Dune next year. But yeah, we've also covered Promising Young Woman in the Oscar year. And I just, I love Carrie Mulligan. And I think what she does there is incredible. And Fennell, it was her debut too. And capturing her writing, I think was really stunning and daring of Carrie in her performance. Okay, so here are the five that I have for you. Barry Lyndon, and a lot of these are like some of my favorite movies of all time. (laughs) Nashville, Broadcast News. So all three of these, I actually didn't know that you disliked them until we covered them on the pod. So I was discovering in real time that you didn't like movies that I really loved. Mulholland Drive, which is one of my favorite movies we haven't covered. I'm afraid to. And my last one is Something's Gotta Give, which I I love that movie. I actually think Diane Keaton should have won the Oscar <laughs> for that movie. I'm not even kidding. I think she should have three Best Actress Oscars, Annie Hall, Reds, and Something's Gotta Give. So, yeah. But I also know how you feel about Jack Nicholson. I think especially, like, elder Jack Nicholson or romantic Jack Nicholson. I think maybe when I'm 60 or 70... I'll like this movie, but until then, I think you sent us some clip from this movie of Diane writing and crying, and this is also the part of me that hates rom-coms or, like, these types of rom-coms, but I'm just like, no, next. I mean, three of these movies, Broadcast News, Mulholland Drive, and Something's Gotta Give, feature a lead actress crying about her job. Maybe I relate to that more. With... Mulholland Drive, I've just tried and tried and tried with Lynch, and I'm just not a Lynch fan. Kubrick I love. This is just not a Kubrick that when I've watched it, I think I've only seen it once because it was troublesome. But I would definitely love to see it on the big screen. And it's been a few years, and things have changed, so maybe I'll appreciate it more. I think it's the period piece of it all that I have trouble with, which we all know. Well, it's interesting, too, because I have trouble with 2001. I like it, but it's not at the top of my list. And I'm wondering, I said this to you in jest, but I'm wondering if it's somewhat true in that we just have trouble with specific settings. It's like we can appreciate things, but there is a a barrier there depending on where it's set and the rules of that world that just doesn't click for us. But I actually quickly want to read what Celine Song said about Barry Lyndon because it's just so beautiful. It's just the perfect description of this movie, I think. She said this in her Criterion Top 10. She said, Barry Lyndon contains what I believe is at the heart of Kubrick's work, that people are really, really small in the face of history, time, space. All of the characters are like dust, as if they just might blow away any moment and disappear. Their pettiness and egos are power-mongering and are held up to be laughed at. It's a comedy, even though it's made up of a series of perfectly crafted, unfortunate events. There's quite a bit of trolling in it, which is the quality you always find in Kubrick's films. Its sense of humor is very dark, which I love. 
The visual world of Barry Lyndon is unbelievable. I often pause the film when I'm watching it just so I can look at it as if it were a painting in a museum. It's my favorite Kubrick. And then I started thinking about past lives and her painterly shots mm-hmm. and the way that she holds her camera. And she also listed the Age of Innocence on her Criterion 10. And those two are two of my favorites and I think just go really well together. And I thought, oh my God, now I want Celine Song to make a period film. I want her to make this like dark, emotionally violent costume drama. I think she'd nail it. Oh, I definitely think she could. And with Barry, I know it's beautiful. It's, you know, everyone talks about the cinematography and all of the shots. Maybe I just didn't get the dark humor, like the Kubrickian part of this movie. It felt like a departure for him, but maybe it's not as big of one as I thought it was when I first saw it. The humor is so dark and specific that I think if you're not on its wavelength, it can be a weird film to access. So I think once you get the humor and the rhythm of the movie, it's a lot easier. And I also second your want to see this in theaters because I just saw it in theaters a few months ago and there's nothing like seeing it on the big screen. It really just, you get sucked into that space and it makes you understand it, I think, a bit more. And RIP Ryan O'Neill, he's the perfect choice for Barry Lyndon and you'll see why when you're watching the movie. Okay, next up, this is our only genre category, but... We had to do it because it's our favorite, our favorite horror movies. Yeah, and we talked about horror movies pretty extensively, I think, across the show because we love them so much. And it's just kind of ironic that we have an Oscar podcast because that means we have to find creative ways to talk about them. But my favorite horror movie of all time is Rosemary's Baby. We talked about that in depth on our New York movies episode this past year. I think it's one of our best conversations Highly recommend everyone go check that out and listen to it if you haven't yet. But I just love this unsettling world. And my favorite thing about horror movies is that they can really be Trojan horses to to discuss key political themes at the time. So you can learn a lot about what's going on politically and historically through watching horror films because they can tackle riskier topics. And Rosemary's Baby is certainly one of those. The Exorcist. Also on my list, of course, we've talked about that. That was another great conversation. We went really in-depth on this. William Friedkin's classic, which also is an Oscar-nominated and winning film. The Shining. I love it so much. It's one of my comfort movies, as weird as that is to say. I will just put on The Shining sometimes. I love this movie. I think it's one of Kubrick's best movies, and that's, you know, draw a name out of a hat. That could be anything. could be Kubrick's best movie, but I love The Shining, Shelley Duvall's performance, the nastiness of the movie and how unsettling everything is. Don't Look Now, Nicholas Rogue, love this film, Donald Sutherland, Julie Christie. It's just such a perfect depiction of grief and it's also very gothic. So one of my favorite things based on the Daphne du Maurier short story. And I love its use of the setting. Venice really is another character. So I also got to see this on the big screen this year and was really blown away again by it. And my last one is Halloween from 1978 because I think this just works so well as a slasher. It's really scary and it's one of my favorites to watch every Halloween. A great five. Some of these I really love. 
with my five, I've mentioned a few of these before. The first one being the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. When I was in Berlin, I went to the film museum and they had a really cool little exhibit on this movie and old German expressionist films. And they actually had a model set of how they filmed this movie. And I loved seeing it from every angle and also, you know, how they made movies 100 years ago is different in ways, but also the same. So yeah, and when I first watched it, I was just totally scared. And that feeling sticks with me whenever I see this. I think it shows how lasting of a movie this is and how important it is to film history. My next one is The Descent, a much newer film, but a wonderful Australian horror film where I saw a TikTok recently of the U.S. and different international versions. I don't know if it's Australian or the U.K., but different endings for the movie and the non-U.S. ending is so much scarier. Of course, we have to like dilute things for audiences to enjoy more or to feel hopeful, I guess. But I love this movie so much. It's terrifying. It is so claustrophobic and makes me feel that every time I see it. It's not a place I would ever want to be, and it makes me never want to go spelunking ever again. I've done it once. I'm like, how did you do that? Oh, it's been years since I've watched this. I have not returned to it because just the idea of being underground, I can't deal with. Like the catacombs, spelunking, underground tunnels, anything like that. No, thank you. But I will revisit it because now I'm curious. It's a great one. It's I think an all-female cast, too. They all do amazing work in this movie. Also, the colors are great. My next one is Green Room. This is also a newer film. It borders on horror. It's a thrilling movie. But every time I watch it, I'm terrified. And I also mentioned this on our A24 episode of our favorites from their collection. And this still holds true. I love this movie so much. My next one is Psycho. You mentioned this already today. We both love this movie. I think it's one of the best horror films of all time. And from one of our favorites, Alfred Hitchcock, amazing director who also never won. And Scream is my last film. I love this franchise. We'll see if we get another one. But yeah, the original, I love Drew Barrymore's entry and just what this slosher did for new horror films. And I love where... It has gone since. I mean, I love the original trilogy, but I think four held up. Five was wild, and they keep trying to morph the story to stay new. And six, I think, was a different beast, but still fun from earlier this year. I love two also. We love our Laurie <laughs> Metcalf, of course. Yes. <laughs> but Scream is, I mean, it's a classic for a reason. It's so much fun. That's one I watch every year, too. Next, we have guilty pleasure movies, yes, but they're also, I think, movies that the Oscars would never touch in a million years, but that we personally love or find ourselves watching repeatedly. Only one of my movies the Oscars have touched, and it was a five-time nominee, which is wild, and I don't know why I love this movie so much, but it's Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. It's the only one, I don't even know how many there are now, that I return to. And like, whenever I'm thinking of this movie, I'm like, oh, I wish this were on. 
it's just so fun. And the score, I think the Zimmer score is so wild and captures that adventure so well. The other movies I have on my list, I have Best in Show, Clue, How to Be Single, mentioned this recently, and Miss Congeniality, which is just ever since I've seen it, one of my favorites and an easy one to return to. Mine are peak silliness for me. The first one is Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. I think that this movie is a balm to any sadness or anger or any difficult emotion that you are feeling. Put Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again on and you will feel better. I love these. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This movie shouldn't work at all. Like the way it uses Meryl Streep, questionable. The way Cher comes in at the end, who knows? But I think Lily James is absolutely delightful in this as the young Donna, and I love like being in Greece and the sunshine and how this movie makes you feel. It's just delightful. The next one I have is Bring It On, which is one of my favorite comedies ever. I watched this at every single sleepover growing up and would quote it all the time as a fourth grader, which can you imagine saying some of these lines? like eight or nine years old and like doing all the cheers with your friends at sleepovers. That's what this movie really was. And I think I still know most of it by heart. And I think Kirsten Dunst is also really good in this movie as Torrance Shipman, Mm -hmm. just one of our great actresses. Next, I have the underrated, misunderstood classic, Jennifer's Body. Have you seen this? I have. I didn't love it. It's kind of camp. Yes. It's a lot. Also just Megan Fox in a movie, but she goes there. I love Megan Fox. I really do. I can't help it. And I saw this movie so many times in theaters when it came out. Like this was just a movie my friends and I were going to see. And I just loved it. I don't know. Like I loved the characters. I loved how weird it was. I liked the themes, but it was also just, I don't know. It was fun to see Megan Fox go there, like you said. And in a similar vein... Ma, <laughs> which we both really love. Love our Ma, yeah. <laughs> this movie is just so funny and it's so ridiculous. And the first time I watched this movie, I remember thinking that was really bad. Mm-hmm. What Same. did I just watch? Is this one of the worst horror movies I've ever seen, <laughs> actually? And then over time, I realized what a gem it really is and how funny. It is so funny how Octavia Spencer is just so committed. It feels like whatever happened to Baby Jane in a way. Like it's just camp. And again, the dialogue is so funny. Love, love Ma and all of the memes that it has spawned. And then my last one is a movie that I know at my core is genuinely bad. I'm not saying this is a good movie, but if it is on TV, I'm watching it. And that is Twilight. I saw this movie seven times in theater my sophomore year of high school. My friends and I would go after school to see this. It just had its hooks in us. In a similar way that Jennifer's body did too, but Twilight was a it was a phenomenon. Your last three definitely have a similar vibe to them. Yeah. I felt the same about Ma. I saw it in LA before it had come out. It was actually like a They gave us a piece of paper and they wanted our thoughts on it. And I like totally tore this movie apart. But I think looking back, this wasn't a serious movie. This wasn't supposed to be. 
and I wanted like a good horror film from it. But I love that we have this absolute serve from Octavia Spencer, where she's just giving us comedy the whole time. And yeah, I love the memes. I mean, to this day, people with any title that has M.A. in it will substitute it with the photo of Ma. Ma December. This will live on and on forever. And Mm -hmm. yeah, we talked about this on our Patreon as well. So that was a fun little chat we had. Yeah. (laughs) Featuring Best Supporting Actress winner Octavia Spencer. Okay, so our next category, we have our Oscar Wilde Wrapped. Kind of like Spotify Wrapped. Movies that we watch heavily and over and over and over. Yeah, so my first one is a surprise to approximately zero people. That movie is Phantom Thread. So Phantom Thread's my favorite movie ever made. When it came out in 2017 and into early winter 2018, so like January and February, I saw this movie 11 times in theaters. It was the year of MoviePass, so I would go... (laughs) twice a week sometimes to go see it. I just was obsessed. I still am obsessed. Years later, I watch it now less frequently. I mean, I I couldn't do it once a week now. Yeah, that'd be way too much. Now I usually watch it once or twice a year. It's very limited. I usually like doing it around New Year's. And then sometimes if I'm just really in the mood and can't think of anything to watch, I'll watch Phantom Thread. I just know it like the back of my hand and think it's brilliant. And it's why I'm doing this today. It inspired me to talk about film in a different way. So Phantom Thread will always be in my heavy rotation. The Parent Trap, the Nancy Myers version, is one of my go-to comfort movies. I also, if I'm looking for something to watch and just need something in a similar way to Mamma Mia, here we go again. Um, I will just put on The Parent Trap because I love these characters. It's just so comforting even if you're just watching half of the movie or you just want to see Natasha Richardson as a wedding dress designer with Lindsay Lohan or you want to watch the camping trip or you want to watch the earlier scenes in the movie it's just one I can so easily slip into and seriously one of my favorite directorial debuts this is Nancy Myers's very first movie and I think that she establishes her style right away My next one is Gone Girl, which is another comfort movie for me (laughs) that I will want to put on here and there. It's one of my favorite David Fincher movies, and I just think that Rosamund Pike's performance is brilliant, and it's just a really fun watch. It's actually one of those movies, though, in a similar way to A Star Is Born 2018, that I watch the first half of the movie and then I stop it, (laughs) or I'll just because I just love. The part of the movie up until she gets to Desi's house. And then I'm a little bit less interested. But the beginning of Gone Girl. Yes. Our next one that I know you have on your list too. Listen, I know people don't like this movie. And you're entitled to your opinion. But you and I have loved this movie since it came out. We will not apologize for it. And that is Damien Chazelle's La La Land. Yep. I love it so much. And I don't know. I just, it makes me really happy. I know that it's also really sad but I love the ending I feel like it's just such a fun movie to watch and I love the I don't know I love Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling in it I love the music how it makes LA look oh and then my last one is a really weird one (laughs) which most people would be like what this movie why and that's all the president's men 
I cannot tell you why I watch this as frequently as I do, but I watch it at least twice a year. I'll just be in the mood for a talky procedural drama, and this is the best of them. I love Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman in this, and this thing flies by to me. It's long, but it flies. I love it. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, for sure. We have to cover that one on the pod, too. Yes, we do. Okay, my five. My first one is Bridesmaids, also an easy background movie. I didn't love this when I first saw it. I remember you saying that. Not as bad as Ma, but I didn't love (laughs) the comedy. And just over time, it's really grown on me. And I think the screenplay now is just amazing you know getting nominated at the oscars especially in supporting actress for melissa mccarthy was so inspired i think maya rudolph and Kristen wig are one of the best duos we have on screen ever and yeah this movie just constant laughs the whole time my next one lady bird i look back on this movie so fondly i love sorcia ronan i love laurie metcalf i love the entire story, it just feels like a big nostalgic hug and like you're going home and Gerwig just gets all of those moments right. I think we feel some of those similar touches in Barbie. My next one, yes, La La Land. I went into this movie completely blind and everything dazzled me. The score I listened to nonstop. I love the visuals. I cry throughout this movie just from how beautiful it is. And yeah, if you hate it, too bad. I love this movie so much. It, it's one of my favorite Oscar winners ever. My next movie, snubbed in some places. I think it should have won everything. Mad Max Fury Road. I just rewatched this last week. It's just a thrill ride from start to finish. And there is no other movie that makes me feel this way. There is no relenting. It's constant sound and visuals that really assault you the entire time in the best way possible and it's just so imaginative too i think what george miller did with charlize and i love tom hardy even nicholas holt the visuals i think i've already decided that i'm going to be somebody from this for halloween next year it's the most beautiful movie ever and my last movie, I saw this for the first time this year and have already rewatched it and know I will constantly, is Thelma and Louise. Another hug of a movie in a different way. But I love Susan Sarandon. I love Gina Davis and this story. And I think this is really Scott's best movie. You might disagree because I know you like Alien, but... No, I, I love Thelma and Louise. I think it's definitely in the conversation. I love, love, love Alien. That'll probably be my pick, but I think Thelma and Louise is a great choice. Okay, our next category is your personality movie for the past five years. So I think each year we make at least one movie our personality. It is our movie that we talk about, that we rewatch, and that just can't get out of our heads. So we will be going year by year from 2019 to 2023. So for 2019, I've already mentioned this movie. I love it so much. Parasite. I saw it in the fall. This was the big winner out of Cannes. It won the Palme d'Or. And there was so much buzz around this movie. And a friend and I were dying to see it. And when we watched it, it didn't disappoint. You know, it it floored us in every way possible. And the minute it finished, I like couldn't stop speaking its praises. And I still am. So yeah, this was my movie that year. 
And mine for 2019 is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I also could have put in my Oscar Wilde wrapped because I also rewatch this frequently. I watch it in the past. It's my birthday movie. So my family before has gotten a little theater and we've watched this uh, for my birthday. I just love it. I find it to be just so warm and nostalgic and... Before this movie, I could write a whole essay on this, and I probably will one day if I can work up the the courage to. But before I saw this movie, when I thought of Sharon Tate, I thought of a woman who was, you know, brutally murdered. And now when I think of Sharon Tate, I think of someone who has her whole life ahead of her, who's watching herself on the big screen, who's picking up a hitchhiker and taking her to wherever she needs to go, who's going shopping and who just loves her life. And that's more powerful than what a lot of movies can really do. So I love this movie and it's another one like how we feel about La La Land where people don't like it. I'm sorry. I will not stop loving it. My 2020 movie partially was Boys State. I love this documentary, but I think the overwhelming movie was Tenet. Couldn't stop talking about it. This was one of those movies you had to go to a drive-in to see. Theaters were closed during COVID Mm -hmm. and making it a thing of going to the drive-in was so much fun and having to untangle this completely bonkers story. It still fascinates me having to think non-linearly, but going forwards and backwards at the same time. It's just a really fun movie and It's always fun to meet people who love this movie because it's an endless conversation of what you think happened and your favorite parts. And I love Nolan's direction, his idea for this, and how they filmed it practically. It's astonishing to watch behind-the-scenes videos, too. It's going to come up on my list later in another category. My 2020 movie was The Nest by Sean Durkin, this chamber piece with Carrie Coon and Jude Law and you know on paper that is a very me movie but at the time it felt so I think so small but I felt so attached to it I've never seen this movie in theaters part of that was because of COVID but I remember just when I watched it for the first time being really blown away by it and thinking you know why don't we have movies like this anymore it felt like something you know dark out of the 70s that I really would have loved and I could watch Carrie Coon in this movie on a loop one of our one of our favorite actresses Carrie Coon Ohio girl for 2021 a movie again I've already mentioned so far Dune I don't think I need to say anything else (laughs) I know for a lot of these I don't really think we need to say much (laughs) And mine was The Power of the Dog. So (laughs) I was so into this movie, Jane Campion's masterpiece. I just, I loved it so much. And I championed it so hard that season. And it was just so unfortunate when Coda came in at the last second and took all those Oscars and Dune took so many Oscars away from it. And it was just the most heartbreaking season. But I think that the people who really love this film, we all bonded together and... I'm so happy that Jane Campion won Best Director for this movie because I really do think it's such an achievement in what she's able to do in this film. It's just the peak of her style of visual storytelling. Last year, I'm split because I really love The Fablemans. I felt similarly leaving that movie as I did to Lady Bird. Just like this hug of a movie that you really get to see Spielberg's love for 
cinema and his childhood and how that affected who he became as a director. But I also really love Fire Island. That's kind of a movie people love and hate, but I love the comedy. I love the adaptation from Pride and Prejudice and just this joyful movie that really celebrated love and friendship. And my, I'm also going with two here because I didn't want to go through this whole list without mentioning Joanna Hogg, who's become such an important filmmaker for me recently. And I loved The Eternal Daughter. I talked about it all the time and would recommend it to people. And I'm begging for it to get a good physical media release. It just came out in theaters in the UK like a few months ago or a month ago. Yeah, I know. So it's had such a weird release strategy. And I just, I want more people to see it. I think Tilda Swinton is so, so good in it. And it's just such a wonderful movie about mothers and daughters and about authorship. I think there are so many movies about filmmaking. And I mentioned this recently when we talked about The Boy and the Heron. But yeah, really, it really is, I think, one of the best movies I've seen in the past few years. And my obvious answer for this question is Tar. I mean, what more do I have to say about Tar? I talk about it still every day. I still send gifs of Lydia Tar. I still quote her. I still think about this movie as a modern masterpiece. And then my movie this year, my personality, is The Holdovers. Well, you don't see movies that frequently. Like, you're not a repeat watcher like I am. So this is big. I'm not. And you saying you saw something seven times, you saw it 11 times in theaters. I'm just like, my body cannot handle that. But I've seen this movie four times in theaters. It is the most I've ever seen a movie in theaters. And I don't know. I just, I love it. I was like quoting the entire thing the whole time, like on mute. But I was like, I just love these characters and their relationships. I love what each of them is doing as well. I think pain in creating this like Hal Ashbyan film and world in the 70s, the script is searing and funny and beautiful. There are just so many things I love about it. And I know it may not win anything and I'm fine with that. But this is one I will like always hold in my heart. And it's weird that like I was not really looking forward to it before the season. And I don't know, something just clicked immediately. It's those like first notes of seeing the choir practice. And it just like takes you back to high school and the funny cringe part of it. And his editing in this movie and the camera work, there are shots that I still really, really love. And I'm like, he didn't have to do that, but he did. So yeah, I I love this one. Oh, I love it too. And mine for this year is May, December, the Todd Haynes film that we talked about starring Charles Melton, Natalie Portman, and Julianne Moore. I really can't get enough of it. I think about it all the time. And one of my friends, she just texted me the other day and said, I can't believe I forgot to tell you, but I watched May, December and I loved it. And I was just so happy that... Like, it just is something that people are discovering on Netflix and really enjoying. So, yeah, more to come on May, December. We're at the halfway point. We have listed 100 <laughs> movies. <laughs> Second half. Let's go. Our next category, we have below the line winners at the Oscars. Okay, so I have a few here. Um, I have Alan Heim for editing All That Jazz. All That Jazz is one of my all-time favorite films and the editing in this movie is 
what makes it really shine and ha- helps you to understand, you know, Fosse's choreography, how he's feeling. We have so many great sequences in this film and how they're cut together. It really does just make the film. And when I think about the ending of this movie, which is one of my favorite endings ever, there is a brutal hard cut near the end that I think is just a work of genius. I've already mentioned this movie, so I'm cheating a little bit here, but Barry Lyndon's cinematography win, it is my all-time favorite win in the category. Every single shot, like Celine Song said, looks like a painting. And that is thanks to John Alcott's work in the movie. And we talked long ago, if you want to go way back into the archives, in our 1975 episode, we talked about how this was the first movie to ever be lit by candlelight and what that meant for the film. Next, we have a film that I'm really surprised we haven't talked about yet, actually, because I know that we both really, really love it. And that is Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes. I'll never forget the first time I saw this movie. It just takes your breath away. Mm-hmm. It really is, I think, one of the greatest achievements. But um, Hein Heckroth and Arthur Lawson, their art direction Oscar, I think, is so well-deserved for the colors and how they designed those stages and just the look of the movie. I think when you watch The Red Shoes, it's easy to be swept up in the performances and the story, but what really shines is the way that this movie looks. The cinematography, the art direction though, namely for me. Next, I am going with editing for Raging Bull. Raging Bull is not one of my favorite Scorsese movies actually, but... I think that Thelma Schoonmaker is the greatest film editor, and I think that her work in this movie is brutal, and it's why the film is so violent and visceral. I know that, you know, a lot of the credit obviously should go to Scorsese as well, but she was the one who made a lot of these decisions, and I think this is her best win. Her other two are for The Departed and The Aviator, so I think this is her, her best work across the three. And my last one is one that we talked about very recently, but I'm going with the costumes for Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. The costume designer, of course, is um, Eiko Ishioka, but we talked a lot about her work as a costume designer on that episode, and I think what she does, I still think about. The suit of armor, the wedding dresses, and the thought process behind the costumes. It really is the the best component, I think, of the film and my favorite costume design win. Okay, my first one I have is in editing for Mad Max Fury Road, a movie I've mentioned, but I think the editing is phenomenal. This was Margaret Sixel, a frequent collaborator with George Miller. This is definitely a big component of why this movie flies by and feels like it's just coming at you all the time is because of the editing. It's really quick, it's smart, and it just heightens all the motion, either from the camera or the action that it's capturing. So yeah, love the editing here. My next one is in score for The Lion King, Hans Zimmer. He's a legend, so I wanted to mention him. And yeah, his first win was for The Lion King. I wasn't going to mention Dune again. I think... In animated movie, Disney film, they sometimes win in other categories besides animated feature, but I think this one is really deserved. Beautiful score, and the songs play into it as well. The next one I have is another movie that is so enrapturing is Whiplash. 
it also has one of the best final sequences of a movie, but the sound work just blew me away. I loved all of the instruments and how they use that really to heighten the relationship between the Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons characters. But this won a few Oscars. I'm going to give it here for sound mixing. The winners were Craig Mann, Ben Wilkins, and Thomas Curley. My next one, a film I really, really love. I wanted to put it in so many other categories, is Pan's Labyrinth. It won in art direction and in makeup. There's so many elements of this movie that are moody and dark and what del toro does best and yeah the images the lighting all of these dark rich saturated colors i love so much the story is just phenomenal last but not least i had to mention moulin rouge and this one in art direction set decoration such a fun movie and a beautiful one too and i think the broadway show really capitalized on what this movie did in terms of visuals because it is so grand and the acting and the songs and everything else as well. But it is really a stunning movie because of these sets. I love those picks too. I also almost went with Pan's Labyrinth and makeup because of that creature whose name I'm forgetting. The eyes, the hands. hands over his eyes. Yep. Iconic. (laughs) How he came up with these things is just beyond Mm me. Next we have movies made before 1990. And as you know, all of my favorite movies were made before 1990. So this was really just, you know, going back and seeing what I hadn't put in other categories <laughs> yet, doing some some mixing and matching here. We really should be calling in to Ryan Lamb and seeing what his five movies would be. <laughs> Never forget his very first introduction on this show was, <laughs> I like to say I don't watch movies made before 1990 in my insides i was just cringing hurting (laughs) wild that we didn't mute him after that yeah Uh, no our friend our friend ryan lamb (laughs) okay for my list i have citizen kane do the right thing moonstruck rear window and the comedic holocaust film that i mentioned earlier to be or not to be i have not seen to be or not to be it is one of my blind spots i don't know how you take it i mean i'm curious i think lubitsch's comedy is fantastic and i think in old hollywood film you would love that aspect but i'm curious about the comedy and if it would play well with you or not well i'm sure it being ernst lubitsch and not taika waititi or roberto benigni (laughs) might help (laughs) so (laughs) i will give it a try but i was wondering also how long it would take one of us to mention citizen kane you know it's almost overrated because it's hyped so much it's rated the best film of all time almost every year it wasn't this past year with sight and sound but it lives up to the hype what wells made and how he captured it it really is a masterpiece of a movie and deserves its spot way up there i agree mine so i have three women rebecca reds brief encounter and cabaret three women is my favorite film by robert altman who is one of my favorite directors We covered this on a movie trade, and you could have probably used this, honestly, as your (laughs) movie that I love that you don't like. Rebecca is one of my favorite Hitchcocks, and I think that the history behind Rebecca is so interesting. His relationship with David O. Selznick and this split creative control over the movie. I love Judith Anderson. It's one of those movies where when I watched it when I was younger, I was just floored by it. I was in. It's like, this is a movie for me. 
Reds is a movie that I will champion until the end of my days. I watched Reds for the first time during COVID and I had always been afraid to watch it. It was daunting with its runtime and I just wasn't sure if I would like it. I just thought, you know, that period in history, I don't know if I'm that invested in it. I don't know how I feel about Jack Nicholson playing Eugene O'Neill. There were all sorts of questions, but I decided that I was going to turn off all the lights in my apartment, put my phone in the other room, and pretend I was at the movies. And I watched it, I took a proper intermission, and I was sobbing by the end. And I cry every time in the moment before the intermission. I just, I love it. I love Diane Keaton so much in it. I think it's Jack Nicholson's best performance. And we just don't get movies like this anymore. They would totally make this into some HBO prestige series if it were made now. So, so happy that Reds exists. Brief Encounter, this David Lean film, is the perfect pairing with Past Lives, actually, I think this year. It's one of my favorite romantic dramas and just has so much feeling packed into it. It's so well written based on the Noel Coward play and it features another one of my favorite lead actress performances with Celia Johnson. Speaking of actress performances, Cabaret. I love Liza Minnelli and Cabaret and I love what Fosse does with this film and I encourage everyone to go see if it's ever coming in your area or if you're traveling and it's in your area to go see the stage version. It's honestly one of my favorite things I've ever seen on stage and it's coming to Broadway. Next we have Golden Age of Hollywood stars. We're sharing a movie recommendation for each one. So the first person I have is Cary Grant, who I adore. He has so much charisma and charm and has been one of my favorites for a really long time. I recommend The Awful Truth from 1937. It's an excellent romantic comedy with him and Irene Dunn, directed by Leo McCary. And it's a tight, you know, like 90 minutes, little divorce romantic comedy. It features a great dog. Irene Dunn has so many wonderful sparkling dresses. I love it. Another comfort movie for me. I had to put Audrey Hepburn on my list because she's a classic and was one of the first old Hollywood stars I really loved and was drawn to. And I'm going with her best actress win, Roman Holiday. We covered Roman Holiday this year on our 1953 Oscar Rewind, so definitely go check that episode out. My next star, another one of my favorites, Joan Crawford, who I just think is such a compelling screen presence and persona in Hollywood history. And you brought up her Oscar win for Mildred Pierce. So I just wanted to share another movie that she's in that I think might be a bit underseen. um, And that is Humoresque from 1946. This is kind of a gender flipped A Star is Born. Next, we have another one of my favorite actors, Montgomery Clift, who I think is just such a, a sensitive performer and He acts in a style that's far different from a lot of his peers, and that's something that I've always been drawn to with him. He's also handsome, of course, which really helps. Like He's a very, very good-looking man, but I would recommend A Place in the Sun. We've covered that film before, too, by George Stevens. I think his performance in that is just amazing. And then my last one is Jimmy Stewart, who really was, I think we've talked about this before, but my gateway into old Hollywood in many ways. Another one of his movies will come up later, but I will recommend The Philadelphia Story, which is where he won his Oscar. And one of my 
all-time favorite movies that we also discussed this year. Yeah, I liked when we talked about that one. With my list, I'm starting it out. We've talked about The Great Dictator before. I had to mention Charlie Chaplin. He's a great director, but also a great comedic actor. And he made so many movies. And I love everything from The Circus to Modern Times to The Great Dictator. Honestly, watch any of those. Is the biggest swing from best to worst movie we've covered in a single episode, The Great Dictator to The Trial of the Chicago 7. Because I just remember that we paired the two of those together. (laughs) Oh boy. Um, Yeah, not not a great It's definitely up there. (laughs) How did we? Oh my God. We were just getting started. We were figuring it out. (laughs) Well, my next star, one that we both love, Betty Davis. We talked about her when we discussed All About Eve, but she has so much personality and strength in her acting. I'll mention the Weiler movie, The Letter, to watch. Wait, this is shocking to me. When did you watch The Letter? And why didn't we talk about this? I started it, and I definitely want to finish it. I don't know about the politics of the movie, but I think her performance, you know, from her first moment on screen is great. No, I I really like The Letter and her performance in it, so... I was just thinking we should cover that. We should do a Betty Davis episode. Oh, absolutely. My next star, I have William Holden. Great actor. I don't really turn to old Hollywood men when I think of like stars that I really love. It's really in the actresses. But I think his performances throughout so many films, The Bridge on the River Kwai, Sunset Boulevard, Stalag 17, which he won his Oscar for. I'm going to recommend that movie here. My next one, Marilyn Monroe. Don't really have to say much about her. I I think she's brilliant in All About Eve, but also in Some Like It Hot. That's my recommendation. She's just stunning on screen and any Billy Wilder movie I will recommend. My last one, I had to, Barbara Stanwyck. She is my favorite old Hollywood star. And we covered her previously this year. We talked about Stella Dallas, which is my recommendation. She has so many gems and she is stunning in everything that she does. You know, that image from Double Indemnity is seared in my mind of that blonde wig and those sunglasses. She's an iconic actress and my favorite of all time. She's my favorite of all time too, but I did want to save her for you because I know (laughs) that you really, really love her as well. And in a similar way to Montgomery Cliff, she's acting in a style that has not been discovered yet, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the really cool thing about her. Okay, next up, we have a fun category. It's cancer season all year long. (laughs) Movies that make us cry, which we mention frequently on the pod. Okay, so I cry in movies a lot. There are different types of movies that make me cry, I think, in different you know, different experiences that come from this. The first is It's a Wonderful Life, which I'm about to rewatch soon. My family watches it every Christmas Eve, the Frank Capra holiday classic. And I cry at the ending, heavy cry, sob at the ending Mm -hmm. every single time. When George says attaboy, Clarence, it's done. It's, It's really over for me in that moment. Terms of Endearment, the James L. Brooks movie with Deborah Winger and Shirley MacLaine. This is a different type of crying. This is a painful, painful, heavy type of cry because it is a cancer movie and it's about mothers and daughters and it obliterates me. 
The next one I have is another different type of cry. We really are cancers, just in the way I'm talking about crying. (laughs) Um, The next one I have is A Woman Under the Influence, which has, I think, one of the best performances ever put to screen by Jenna Rollins. And this movie is interesting because what happens when you're watching it, at least what happens when I've watched it, I've only seen it twice. I don't think I'll maybe ever watch it again. But you don't realize you're crying. You're just feeling so much for this character as she's put through the ringer and as she experiences so much with her children and her husband and everything that she's dealing with that you just have a steady stream of tears. John Cassavetes and his power and Jenna Rollins, of course. The next one is kind of a happy, nostalgic type of cry. And that's Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, which you've mentioned. But this was one of my favorite theatrical viewing experiences, too, because when I went to see this, I didn't know what it was about at all. And it was just crazy to feel so seen and understood by a movie. Like I went to a Catholic high school. I just recognized and picked up on a lot of the references and experiences. But there's just that Gerwig sweetness to it that isn't saccharine it's but it has that nostalgia baked into Mm -hmm. it and when (laughs) dave matthews band starts playing at prom that should not make you cry but it makes me cry (laughs) every time and of course when laurie metcalf is driving away from the airport i always cry and think of my mom in that moment and my last one is almost famous the cameron crow movie I love music and grew up, I think, listening to a lot of the bands and a lot of the songs that the characters in this movie listen to. And I think what this film does so well is it really captures what it feels like to love art and to love music and what it feels like to love something that can't love you back. And it's just such a powerful feeling. And this movie always makes me cry. So those are my five. Most of mine are holiday films. I probably could have had all five because I cry (laughs) in many of them. But my first one we talked about on our Patreon, About Time, a lovely movie. There are so many moments in this movie and it kind of capitalizes on reasons that always make me cry, which is like a father-son relationship and then like finding each other when Domhnall Gleeson and Rachel McAdams, when they start to fall in love, it's just all very touching. The next one is The Family Stone. We also talked about this very recently. I love this movie so much. And really any scene with Diane Keaton, I just start sobbing because she's phenomenal. And the story feels real to me. And I love seeing the quirkiness of this family and the characters. My next one is Love Actually. It was in theaters last week for its 20th anniversary. I love this so much. It was the first time I had seen it on the big screen. And... It felt like seeing it for the first time. Again, the comedy played so well with the audience. And I just found myself lightly crying throughout. Obviously, the Emma Thompson scene is the most tragic. I think she should have been nominated for this. My next one is called Other People. It's with Molly Shannon. I've never seen this. You should watch it. It's very fun. It's, I think, one of Jesse Plemons' first movies or at least as like a leading man in the film. It's from Chris Kelly, which is one of the pair that made the other two. The show that's, I mean, it's canceled now, but it's on Max. There are three seasons of that, and Molly Shannon plays the mom, Pat, in that show. Hilarious show. 
I think, you know, what Chris Kelly can do with drama and comedy and in mixing them so well makes you sob your eyes out. And then in the next moment, you're laughing and it's just back and forth the whole movie. And Molly Shannon's performance here, too, is out of this world. She really nails it. And my final movie, similar to what I've mentioned already, just there's an ending where you just your tear ducts dry up because of how much you've already cried and it's stepmom. I love Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon in this and you slowly fall in love with their relationship. They really don't like each other, but in the end there's this catharsis and they make up in a sense and in that moment everything feels whole and it's warm but so sad at the same time. Our next category, we have directors that never won an Oscar. So we'll be going through some of these and then sharing a movie that we think they should have won a directing Oscar for. My first one is Akira Kurosawa. So many classics and many of his films have been remade in other countries. Last year we had Living, which was a recreation of Akira, one of his all-time favorites. My favorite of his. Okay. That's a blind spot of mine, too. I've kind of waited because of living, so I will get to it eventually. But I'm recommending High and Low, which really made me appreciate how Kurosawa deals with political themes and shows them. His camera is incredibly sharp, and that plays with the editing and really the framing of the characters and certain objects. I think he has a fantastic sense of entertainment, but also in the layers beneath that when you're watching a film. My next director is Sidney Lumet. I really love his 12 Angry Men. That's my recommendation. Superb direction. This is just incredibly sad that he never won. Next up is Park Chan-wook, who, if you haven't seen The Handmaiden, go and see it right now. It's one of the most beautiful films of all time. Also wasn't nominated and should have won cinematography. He has so many films that I absolutely love. Neon re-released Old Boy this year for its 20th anniversary, and that was very fun to watch in theaters. It was interesting going with people who had never seen it before, and I just think of this as an all-time classic, but he's also made Thirst, which I really like, even Snowpiercer. There are a lot of movies to love in his filmography. Next up, you mentioned one of his movies already. Terrence Malick is just incredible with his naturalism and how he captures the beauty and silence, really, on screen. My recommendation is The Tree of Life. I feel his best movie, but he has so many classics. The Thin Red Line, Days of Heaven, Badlands. Everything he makes really is a work of art. And there are so many shots on The Tree of Life that I really love. Last up, maybe he'll get some praise this year, Hayao Miyazaki, one of my all-time favorites, and I think his persistence to continue working until he dies really shows in his craft. My recommendation is Princess Mononoke, which is my favorite of his. It's a darker film. It's not like his other childlike movies of, you know, Totoro or Kiki's Delivery Service, Castle in the Sky, Ponyo, but... The animation is exquisite, but you really can't go wrong with any Miyazaki film. I love those picks. My first one is Robert Altman, who I've already mentioned is one of my favorite directors ever. I just, I love his movies. And with each 
movie that I discovered. It's just, I don't know. It's such a delight, I think, to just feel so connected with a piece of art. And for his, I would go with McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which I think is his greatest achievement as a director. You haven't seen it, have you? Mm -mm. Okay. I actually don't think you would like it, but I think it's a masterpiece. It's just this incredible take on a Western. So that might be, I know you don't like Westerns either, but it's, it's not like your typical one. It's, it has a lot of layers and I, I think it's just a beautiful movie. My next one is someone I've already mentioned, Paul Thomas Anderson, my favorite filmmaker working today. And I know he still can win a directing Oscar, but it's, it's been far too long. What is this Academy doing? It's, it's ridiculous. He should have three minimum Oscars for directing with There Will Be Blood, The Master, and Phantom Thread. There's just no reason why he shouldn't. And if they want to give him a screenplay Oscar, fine. But I would love for him to win a directing Oscar. My next person is Spike Lee, who I know has an Oscar for adapted screenplay for Black Klansman, but he absolutely should have won Best Director for Do the Right Thing. That film is such an achievement and is held up over time and says so much about the period that he was working in, but also right now. And he's the type of filmmaker, I think, who when you think of someone who should have a directing Oscar, his name is on that list. And I think it it definitely should have been for Do the Right Thing. And of course, like he still has time too, but I really feel like he should have won for that one. And he was famously snubbed. My next pick is Agnes Varda. I feel like she should have absolutely won a directing Oscar. I would have gone with Cleo from 5 to 7, which is just this really beautiful piece of cinema verite that I recommend everyone should watch. It's just about this woman, a day in her life, and it just shows, I think, why Varda is such a respected and beloved director. My last one is Hitchcock, (laughs) which is a very typical pick, I think, but... When you realize Hitchcock never won Best Director, it kind of takes away all the seriousness of the Oscars. You just think, why? You know, if he couldn't get one, Mm -hmm. is this all meaningless anyway? And I would have gone with Vertigo, which is my favorite, favorite Hitchcock movie. More Hitchcock films to be mentioned. Don't you worry. Our next category, we have favorite theatrical experiences. I love this. So I think we should talk about our 2001 A Space Odyssey experiences maybe together at the same time Mm -hmm. so i've told this story on the pod before but i saw 2001 a space odyssey for the first time at the afi silver which is a theater in silver spring maryland and they were doing a 70 millimeter run of it and this dad brought his kids to the movie and he got them popcorn and i just remember looking over at these kids when the movie started And they were in awe. The butter on their faces was just glistening. It was so cute and magical. And then they fell asleep. So it's just, it was so, so funny to me. But seeing this movie in theaters is the only way to see it. So if you haven't seen 2001 yet, I recommend, if possible, waiting for a theatrical viewing. They play it Mm semi-regularly, I think, in theaters. Yeah, I saw mine also in 70mm. I think early when I moved to New York and I had seen it before, but never in the theater. And I don't know, going to this felt like a completely new experience. I loved all of those visuals on screen, seeing it in film. Everything was so crisp. And it's one of my favorite movies of all time. But 
seeing this in a theater, I distinctly remember that moment. And it was just a beauty. Yeah, it's something you have to see in theaters. Mentioning another movie that I think you need to see in theaters. It holds up at home, but seeing it in theaters is everything. I saw Jaws Labor Day weekend at the Cinerama Dome at the former Arclight out in LA. And it was just so much fun. People were clapping at the beginning to the different credits, like when Spielberg's name came up and John Williams' name came up. And it is just such a movie movie, to quote Harry Styles in the Don't Worry Darling press tour. It just, it feels like such a cinematic experience. And there's just something about needing to wait to see the shark and how Spielberg's camera works. And the fact, again, that he was in his 20s when he made it. It just feels like such a good summer movie and seeing it there with a crowd like that was just so much fun. And then you also mentioned this movie already, but I'm going to mention Tenet. (laughs) So (laughs) Tenet was my first movie back in theaters um, during COVID. I took an Uber to Virginia to see this movie because the theaters in DC weren't open and there was an IMAX in Virginia that was playing it. And I remember being double masked And I was just, I was ready to go. I needed to get back to a theater. And it was just so much fun. I didn't know what any of it meant. It made no sense to me. I thought, you know, is this a good movie? Is this a bad movie? I don't really care because I am here alone in an IMAX theater (laughs) watching this. I was the only person there. (laughs) My own private IMAX showing of Tenet. Christopher Nolan would have been very proud. And then I ended up seeing it later at the drive-in with my mom when she came to visit me. And it was a hilarious experience. If you can imagine seeing Tenet at a drive-in where children are running around screaming, there are no subtitles, the audio quality is terrible. It's like playing on loudspeakers and through your car radio. It was such a fun experience. And then I also loved seeing Benedetta at the world premiere at Cannes. Cannes was just such a special film festival because it was my first one by myself and you've had this experience too so you know what that feels like but I don't know being dressed up like in black tie going to a premiere and Paul Verhoeven was there and the cast was there I had just never experienced anything like that before and it just felt like it reminded me of all of the hard work that we put in to like building this podcast and you know connecting with people over the show and I just it was the first time I really felt like oh this could be like a real thing Not to get emotional, but it was just really, really cool. And the movie's hilarious and great. So that was fun. And my last one is Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's most recent film. I saw it Village East. I saw it twice in one day. I came back after Thanksgiving and saw it by myself in the morning at like 10 a.m. And saw it again that night with my sister. And we went to the beautiful screening room. It was in 70 millimeter. We were front row of the balcony. You could hear the projector. And you could hear like the crackling. And it was just so fun. So I would say those five. That's where I saw 2001. Oh, that's a great theater to see that 2001. I saw Barry Lyndon there. Okay. So it's it really is just a magical screen. Beautiful theater. And... Talking to your Benedetta, I saw it at the New York Film Festival premiere, and that was memorable in its own way because they had picketers outside, you know, saying what an awful movie this was and its depiction of religion and Christianity. Lesbian nuns. Yeah. Yeah. That was 
interesting to say the least <laughs> but also with can i have when i saw how to have sex on my list i waited in standby and it was pouring rain we had like maybe 90 minutes until the movie started and i was like well i have some time to kill why not just wait in the rain but it honestly wasn't that bad and i was surprised how many people got in because you go and you're like oh am i just gonna waste an hour waiting in line not get in and then find something else to see but seeing this movie was just such a joy and like your screening you know the whole cast is there they do a little intro and just getting to see the love for it after everyone kind of turns to them and gives them a standing ovation it's a beautiful film and to have that happen the way that the movie ends was just so memorable i saw this movie twice at the festival because i loved it so much hopefully it gets a release here soon i know it's out in the uk Another festival experience, not for the movie, just for the viewing conditions and the hellish theater of seeing Blonde with Bennett Prosser at the Venice Film Festival in the public screening room, the Paula, just like nightmares of thinking of going back there. (laughs) (laughs) But this screening, God, this movie, tragic, but... You know, someone fainting in the middle of it, everyone screaming for medics to come and then taking them out and people turning around while the movie is finishing. It was just the most chaotic thing I've ever experienced in a movie. And my next one, I saw The Favorite at the AFI Fest when that premiered. Not a memorable theater or anything, but I think just the whirlwind of that movie and I rewatched that with friends at the AMC Sunset that's no longer standing in LA as well. But it's just a fun movie to have an audience for. And last but not least, going to see Barbenheimer this past summer. I think it's a memory that I will think back to fondly in the years to come. And seeing Oppenheimer in the morning and the big AMC Lincoln Square IMAX. And then going back and seeing Barbie and Dolby later that day with other friends. The Oscars, you know, will these movies will definitely be showing up and I want them both to win awards because it really did capture the summer and the moment was Barbenheimer. And I think getting people excited to go back to the theater was huge for the box office this year. And yeah, I just love seeing everyone love these movies too. It's yeah. Why we do this pod for sure. Mm -hmm. So next we have favorite movie endings. And I think for this one, Just to avoid spoilers, since these are movies we're recommending, let's just maybe each list our five and then we can talk maybe like broadly about the themes that come up in them or why they stand out to us without going into individual spoilers for each movie. Yeah, I was going to say I'm not going to say anything that will give anything away, but I do really love all of these movies. I think it just speaks to the filmmaking and everything crescendoing to a very memorable finale so my five movies are call me by your name the graduate i am love the social network and wildlife mine i promise please don't worry about me listeners if you're familiar with these films because mine have very (laughs) dark bleak endings just looking at these oh my god okay so my favorites are the conformist there will be blood no country for old men Chinatown and Sunset Boulevard. So as you can tell, again, I love a bleak ending. 
that just really punches you in the gut after what you've just experienced. And I think that all of these are that way for me in some sense and are why I love the movie so much. Like the endings I think are perfect and they make the films work so well. And if they had different endings, I don't think I would like the films as much. We're not spoiling them, but just know these movies all have great endings. So if you haven't seen them, add them to your list. Or if you want a little refresher, if you've already seen them, go watch the ending on YouTube. I tend to do that from time to time with some of these, which is very bizarre behavior. (laughs) Yeah, I highly recommend all of these. Our next category is a bit sweeter. Movies we're excited to introduce our future children to. Don't worry, everyone. I'm not not introducing my future children to The Conformist. (laughs) That too, yes. (laughs) No, it's, it's so funny with this category, though, because for this, I really did steer towards like kid-friendly picks because I don't know I'm kind of nervous to show them the ones I really really care about (laughs) like I don't think I'm gonna say a word about Phantom Thread to my future daughter named Alma ever (laughs) until (laughs) she's able to watch it so that I'm not disappointed you know if the worst thing happens and she doesn't like Mm -hmm. it anyway my movies so I have they've all I think They were all important to me growing up or that I just think will be really good introductions to different types of films. But first, I'm cheating and I have two. I have My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service, both, as we discussed on our Miyazaki episode with Ryan earlier this year, they were just so meaningful for me growing up. And they're the types of movies where... I I can't wait to show them to my future children if I have them one day. My next one is 101 Dalmatians, which I just think is such a fun, classic Disney film. I love the hand-drawn animation, and I just really want my children to see that style of animation, I think, and to get, you know, comfortable with that and to just see how beautiful that style is and those buildings in London and Cruella is such a good villain. Yeah, so definitely that one. Uh, Mary Poppins. This movie I was obsessed with growing up. I love Julie Andrews in this. I love the music. It's so whimsical. I love how it blends live action and animation. I think that's really fun for kids. And I want to make sure they're introduced to older films too. Like that's really important to me because I was when I was growing up and feel like it made a world of difference in my just film education in general. So The Wizard of Oz is also on my list, and I think I like this one as an introduction because it just opens up the world, and it has black and white and color, and I think that's really cool and good for kids to experience, but also it's scary, and I think you can't shelter them always from things like that. Like I was terrified of the flying monkeys growing Mm -hmm. up, so... I also really love The Witches, the rogue version. I watched that growing up too. I think you, yeah, you got to show kids the scary stuff too. um, So that they're, you know, they're curious about that kind of thing. And my last one is for when they're, I think, a little bit older, but it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. My dad showed my sister and me this when we were really young. And I remember being hooked on it. I also loved Harrison Ford. I was maybe like six or seven years old and I thought he was great. <laughs> like when the girls in the class love him, it's like, there's, there's something to him. I get it. Um, yeah, it's just such a fun action adventure movie. It's so well made. And I think it's, it has like some scary moments for kids, but it's still, I think age appropriate. So I would recommend those. I love all of these. We definitely have 
similar reasons to why we have films on our list. The first one, I need my kids to see and love stop motion animation. And Mm -hmm. my pick here is Fantastic Mr. Fox. This is my favorite Wes Anderson film, but the imagery is just so beautiful. Again, it's his work. If you've seen his films, you know what I mean. But I love the story here. These characters, the voices. I mean, George Clooney as Mr. Fox is fantastic. My next film, I'm sure they'll see every Disney movie. I'm not worried about that. But the one that I'm most excited for them to see is WALL-E. It's my favorite Disney film. And it's just different from everything else. You know, we got Soul recently, which is, I think, also an outlier in terms of their filmography. But I love WALL-E so much. The next one, like your Raiders, I wanted a Spielberg film on my list. And I think the most kid-friendly or kid enjoyable will be E.T. Oh, I love E.T. <laughs> I love the score. I love the little Drew Barrymore in there and the story. I think it's one that kids, especially young children, can really love and explore the world through this E.T. Another one is Home Alone. Love holiday films, as I've mentioned. And this one is just so much fun. It's a small Macaulay Culkin and... I think seeing him act, Catherine O'Hara is phenomenal. It's just, it's a great movie. It's a fun rewatch every year for me, and it's a joy. My last one is something I saw pretty young as a kid, but one that I always really loved. And Spielberg had a hand in this as well, but it's The Goonies. Another fun adventure. There's also some evil in it, and I love a scavenger hunt. And the things these kids go through, I think there's a lot of solidarity in it as well. And I think that's where we lie is in the fun to keep things light, but also to remind kids of the world and that there's more to it and a lot of imagination. I love those picks. I'm also so excited to watch Home Alone again Mm -hmm. this year. One of the best. Okay, two more categories. Our second to last one. These are our blind spots. So movies that we've never seen somehow but need to check out maybe we can cover them on future episodes yeah we'll see my list i have being there the hal ashby film persona a huge one this is a bergman almost famous you've mentioned already almost any john ford movie i have not been great oh my god yeah okay i think we need to do a ford episode because Previously, we did a lot of the directors who've won multiple directing Oscars, so I think we need to do a big Ford episode next season. Yeah, definitely. I've seen How Green Was My Valley and Stagecoach, but The Searchers is constantly on top movie lists, and I haven't seen that. And he's one of the most nominated directors at the Oscars, so yeah, I've got to work on that. But my last one is The Godfather Part 3. I've steered away from this because of what people say about it i don't want it to taint my love for the rest of the trilogy but i have to get to it sometime i need to finish in my completionist mode that i am but yeah this is another blind spot you need to watch being there and almost famous i think for sure almost famous definitely because i just feel like you'll really like it Mm -hmm. and it's just one of my favorites and being there is brilliant Absolutely brilliant. Peter Sellers, the performance Mm -hmm. that he gives is one of the best of all time. Not to overhype it for you, but it's a really beautiful film. And a a favorite of Roger Deakins. 
Okay, so on my list, I have Make Way for Tomorrow. This is a Leo McCary movie that Alexander Payne recently mentioned was one of his influences for The Holdovers. And it sounds very sad, but I've heard great things about it, so I definitely need to watch it. Blow Up, the Antonioni movie I've never seen somehow, and I know I need to. Wings of Desire, which you mentioned earlier. I really, really need to see this movie. Everyone tells me how perfect it is and how much I'll love it. So I know I need to watch it. I've never seen any of the Matrix sequels. I've only seen the Matrix. (laughs) And it just feels like kind of a weird blind spot for me that I've only seen the first ones. But I'm so, I'm so bad with action and sci-fi. As you can probably tell, literally nothing on my list today has been from either of those genres with the exception of Heat and 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I really need to do those sequels. And my last one is Tokyo Story, the Ozu film. I've never seen this, but um, like The Searchers for You in Persona, this one's always on sight and sound and those big lists and I've never seen it. So I need to cross this one off my list too. I don't necessarily think the Matrix sequel should be top priority for you. The sequels are definitely (laughs) very different. In terms of quality than the original, but I appreciate you putting that on the on your list here. Well, you know I'm not I'm not a Wachowski fan, really. Yeah. I don't not really my speed racer, but I'm willing to try. <laughs> okay, we made it. This is our final category. Finishing up our list of two hundred things in the most Oscar Wilde way possible. We're listing our favorite Oscar Wilde episodes we've ever recorded. Oh, I know. I got kind of emotional putting these together because there have been so many that I really love, but I really wanted to, I think, just highlight a mix of types of episodes from different eras of the show. And I think my all-time favorite episode is our Dune episode. Yeah. Because it is just so funny. Like, thinking back on... (laughs) Just reviewing that movie and like going through all of the serious, you know, technical elements and how it's a good adaptation and everything like that. And then just getting into the most ridiculous, raunchy smasher pass we've ever done. That's just for me, like the core of our show Mm -hmm. is in that episode. So I really, really love the Dune episode and I hope we can replicate that for Dune part two. Can't wait to talk about Smasher Pass with Austin Butler sticking his (laughs) tongue out in the trailer. (laughs) Um, The next one I have is our West Side Story episode with Connor and Dylan McDowell, our great friends from college. And this was just such a fun episode for us because this was our first season, I think, where we were really covering the Oscars. Our first season, I think, kind of felt like a trial run. And this was when we were really in the thick of it in that 2021-2022 season. And they're just so fun to have on and talking about the version from the 60s and the new Spielberg version was just a delight. And we always love having them on, but I felt like this was just, I think, a good blend of old and new, which I think is another thing that I really like that we do um, on our show is always, you know, blending Oscar retrospectives with current or new releases. Um, My next one really goes along, I think, with when I was talking about Benedetta and when you were talking about how to have sex. And I loved both of our can recaps from when I went and from when you went because I feel like that just means we need to go together one year. 
Oh, absolutely. It'd be so much fun. Yeah. That's always been our goal is to have mm-hmm. an Oscar Wilde in Cannes journey. So we need to do to that the Zara. eventually. <laughs> <laughs> to the Cannes Zara. To the Cannes McDonald's where yes. I saw Tilda Swinton. Oh. To the beach, to everything. It's just the best. Long live can and the Days of Heaven music that plays before every single movie. Um, my next one is actually our 2010 recap with Kevin Jacobson. And I put this one on here because before recording this, I was so nervous, which is so weird to say now because we both know Kevin really well. And I can't imagine, I think, being nervous to record with him now. But before we did this episode, I... Just remember thinking, oh my God, this is our first guest who we don't know. Like he's, you know, not one of our friends from school or not someone we've (laughs) known for a really long time. What if this goes badly? What if it doesn't, you know? Yeah. What if the episode isn't what we usually do and we can't think on our feet? And I had all of this anxiety about it and it went really well. And I'm so glad that we had Kevin on because he was just, I think, Yeah, he was such a great guest to have, but also I think did so much in helping us like promote our show and get more listeners. And I think it was also a good reminder like to be really excited. I think about guests we can have on the show and talking to new people who we don't know about movies. And um, now I love talking to Kevin about movies. And it's just so funny to think back that I was so anxious for that because it ended up going well. And I think that's just kind of like a a moral of the the podcasting story, really. And then my last one is just a random episode that I feel like was really fun just between the two of us. And that was our Faye Prefers Blondes episode in our Mae Dunaway series. This was just like a very fun, loose, casual episode where we did our normal thing, like we reviewed the movies, but it just had this really good energy to it. I love talking about Faye Dunaway, but talking about the towering Inferno and the Thomas Crown affair in these movies that are not really great by any means compared to Network or Chinatown, it was still just so much fun and just reminded me of why I like doing these older retrospectives on the show. Yeah, definitely. I mean, her being your favorite actress, it's this whole series was very fun. (laughs) I wanted to include some of those in mine, but I have five different episodes. First off, we've talked about this movie two or three times now today. Our episode on Tenet was beautiful, a disaster, a (laughs) wild time trying to interpret this movie. And it was kind of fun going through and Mm -hmm. working forwards and backwards and like, I had charts out while we were recording and just trying to figure out what was happening. So that was fun. Our Disney movie draft, we had Ryan Lamb on. It was just fun. Ryan famously loving Disney and getting to talk about so many different (laughs) types of (laughs) Disney films from live action to our favorite childhood animated films. Very fun. Ryan's insights are always great. We had him on for... Mulan also when that film was in the conversation a couple years ago my third episode our Miyazaki retrospective with Ryan McQuaid this was again I've mentioned him already today but it was fun having Ryan different Ryan on to talk about some of our beloved favorites of Miyazaki's I think we all teared up while we were talking about Mm -hmm. Totoro and spirited it away it was great My fourth episode is really a collection of an episode we do every year now. It's our award season Mm -hmm. fantasy draft. And 
I like how it's transformed over the years. Initially, it was us and Bennett, and then we included more people. And last year, we had six different teams, and it was just so much fun, you know, hearing what people were excited for and thought would be big movies. Nobody picking Elvis once, and how many (laughs) nominations that got. But yeah, just having a blast talking about movies and we didn't know how they were going to be received. So those are always fun. Definitely check out our past seasons and how chaotic they sound listening years later. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but also our current one we did with Bennett again and the wild categories we came up with. I'm eagerly awaiting the AARP nominations and winners with that category. And last but not least, one of our first interviews we did on the pod with Aww. the Wolfwalkers directors, Ross Stewart and Tom Moore. They were such a delight. I really enjoy the movie Wolfwalkers. So hearing their process and how many years it took them really to work on this film. So I'm excited to talk with more creatives soon. But yeah, we do this every year as well in thinking about nominees and the awards conversation. Yeah. Oh, I love your list too. This makes me just so happy thinking about how far we've come. And thank you all so much for listening. Whether you've been listening for all 200 episodes or you just discovered us a few weeks ago. Seriously, thank you so much. It's, again, just wild that we've been doing this every single week for four years now but it's just it's so worth it I'm so happy we have this outlet and then we can do it together and it's just been so I think healthy and great for us creatively so again thank you everyone for listening to this episode this was a lot of fun I think going through 200 movies and episodes and actors thank you Nick for assisting and editing every week and you know coming up with episodes with me and there, you know, I, I love doing this with you. So thank you. Yeah, no, it's been fun. And thank you. Thank you to all the listeners. Yeah, 200 episodes, I guess you could start with these 10 that we've mentioned and go back and find some other favorites. Let us know which you really like. And hopefully you'll check out some of the movies that we talked about today, especially the ones that showed up multiple times. I think there was a nice mix that we listed everything from Clue to Robert Altman films to our favorite Best Picture winners. So, yeah, thank you guys so much. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be sharing the Oscar shortlists, which is crazy to think of. They were announced yesterday, so we'll be talking about those categories and what that means, what the nominations could look like, and kind of our predictions generally of how this season has been going and how it looks to be going from these lists. Yeah, I can't wait. This is our tradition every year. Bennett Prosser will be back on to give a rundown of the original song category, which is always a treat. And yeah, I'm so excited, I think, to to see these shortlists. It'll be fun. But thank you all for listening. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show, you can subscribe on Patreon for a small fee to get access to our After Dark series and more bonus content. Thank you all again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.